Welcome back, everyone, to R2Cast number 88, another group podcast today. On Friday, previously, we had Maria Warren, who I said in the podcast is the biggest agricultural TikToker in the UK with 930,000 followers. I apparently was wrong. There is someone who has 3 million followers who just films her sheepdogs running around everywhere, and it's really cool, and I'm now addicted to it. So that is the next person to try and get Sean the sheepdog man or the sheep man or whatever onto the podcast. Uh, on Friday coming, we'll have Ollie Bloggs contracting who anyone is on social media in farming. You've probably seen Ollie, whether that's Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, all the things he's done all. Um, so another interesting story there. So between the two of them, I think we're sitting at like, 1.4 million followers over the course of 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 that uh, those two episodes. Today we've got a really important body, in particular in Scotland. Um, we have had people on talking about this um, organisation in the past. We've had one of the people that is on the call today uh, talking about it sort of briefly on their podcast with Kate Rowell. Um, but today we have QMS, which is Quality Meat Scotland. Now, if you follow me on uh, Rural to Kitchen, first off, I apologise. Um, and second off, uh, you've probably seen me doing some um, film shoots here and there. And one of them was for QMS and it was great fun. And it's a company or an organisation, I should say, that I certainly think is very important to the sector. And we're going to get into what they do, the people behind it and their role um, in, in meat in Scotland in particular. So I'm going to pass you on to Kate first off uh, to sort of give us a wee bit of background uh, about, well, QMS, but also Kate herself. So Kate, could you get, tell us a bit about Quality Meat Scotland? Thanks very much, Wallace. Yeah, I'm really pleased to be here again and uh, joining a very small band of people you said that have been on twice. So that's going to go down in my CV, definitely. Um, Absolutely. Just before we get started with another episode of the R2 cast, I would like to thank our primary sponsors, Aplan Rural. Aplan Rural are heavily involved on the social media scene in the ag space with 120,000 followers on Instagram. They use this following to host social media takeovers with farmers throughout the country to showcase their stories. They also post to their rural community blog with further stories about these people in the industry. On top of this, they like to support initiatives that are championing the British agricultural industry, such as myself. So thank you to Aplan Rural for that. <laughs> so Quality Meat Scotland is basically the red meat levy body in Scotland. And what that means is we collect a levy for every cow, sheep and pig that is slaughtered in Scotland. And we use that for various different things. But the biggest one of those is really promotion. Um, the other things that we do with it are we support and we develop and we protect the red meat industry as well. Um, and we are and NDPB, so that stands for Non-Departmental Public Body. And basically, that is a kind of arm of Scottish Government, but we are not subject to, to what Scottish Government want us to do. We are very much an independent organisation. We are an NDPB because the levy is statutory, and this is the way to make sure that we are audited and that we are providing the value for public money that, that we must do as part of our, as part of our constitution. Um, we also separately, but at the same time, run the quality assurance schemes in Scotland, um, and they are whole of life, whole of supply chain um, schemes, which follow the, the product that you buy in the supermarket right from the farm right through to, to when you pick it up. So basically, if you are out shopping and you see in the supermarket or any other retailer, butchers, or anywhere else. If you see the little logo that says Scotch beef, 
or Scotch lamb or specially selected pork. That means that you can be guaranteed, absolutely guaranteed, that it's been born on a farm in Scotland and reared in, in ways that have been checked, audited by, by us to make sure that they're high in animal welfare, that the traceability is good, um, that they're sustainable, all these different um, things that we can absolutely guarantee have happened on the farm. But it's not just the farm, it's throughout the whole supply chain. So it's the it's the hauliers that move the animals about, it's the auction markets that they go through, it's the feed that they eat, um, and it's the processors uh, at the end of the chain that are also audited. So if you buy something with that rosette on or the specially selected pork logo, you can be absolutely guaranteed that it's Scottish and that it's been well looked after and that it's traceable right throughout the whole supply chain. So that's basically the, the, the two sort of arms of QMS. Um, and like I say, they are separate, but we, we need them both because our whole marketing strategy is built on the integrity and the proof that the assurance schemes give us. So that's about QMS. I'll say a, slight, a little tiny bit about me. I'm a farmer, sheep and cattle uh, uh, in the borders, and I'm also a vet. And uh, I've been chair of QMS for four years now. Well, it, it's. I think you covered that pretty well, Becky. <laughs> we covered just about everything there. Um, I'm sure we'll be going into more depth as we go. Uh, if you are interested in hearing Kate's story more in depth, it is, it is a brilliant episode of the podcast. Um, I, I think it's number 42, I think. Um, or is that? No, it's 39. Um, it's 39 wrong. Uh, so go and check Kate Rill's podcast out if you do want to hear more. It's a really interesting topic and poor Kate got absolutely bombarded from me with questions about foot and mouth because she was a vet at that period of time so uh, I apologise not in advance but in, in whatever the opposite way is uh, to Kate for that but uh, yeah thank you for that Kate. I Just before we sort of go into to QMS more in depth we have three other folk in the call and Lucy Ozan, Beth Alexander and Tom Gibson so I'm going to go around them to hear about a wee, a wee bit about them sort of their role before QMS and, and how they've came to be and what they do now uh, and then we'll sort of go into more specifics on QMS so just purely because you're first on my list of little screens Lucy could we hear about yourself? Absolutely um, so my role at QMS is the public affairs and industry strategy manager um, so that looks at I suppose external affairs in general for QMS um, I joined just over a year ago last January um, when Public affairs was a fairly new area of focus um, for QMS. So my role has been to sort of build on that um, and really raise the profile of the quality assured red meat um, sector in Scotland. Um, but that, I suppose, involves liaising with both the Scottish Parliament, but also the UK Parliament as well. Um, before QMS, I was at the Law Society of Scotland, so <laughs> completely different industry, but a, quite a similar role. Um, in external affairs um, and I was just really drawn to I suppose what's going on in the agri sector the agri food sector in particular obviously needless to say it's not without its challenges but I think it's a really critical time um, so I was really keen to join and, and hopefully make as much impact um, for the positive as possible. It's quite interesting when you hear about that I interview so many folk now and, and you hear what they're doing now and you're like I wonder what they were doing like a few years ago yeah. it's just so different and it, it's, there's so many transferable skills throughout everything. Uh, it's, it's quite interesting to see where everyone's came from, where they've ended up. Um, I've, got quite, I've got quite a few in-depth questions for you, Lucy, I'll be honest. Um, okay. I didn't mention that, so we'll come back to you in a minute. Um, Beth, could you give us a little bit about yourself, just similar to Lucy there? 
Yeah, so um, Beth Alexander, the Monitor Farm Programme Manager um, for QMS. Um, so I've come internally through QMS, I've joined about uh, four years ago now, uh, working in the industry development um, department before I moved into this role. Um, but the Monitor Farm Scotland Programme is a national programme uh, for farmers throughout Scotland. It's funded by... Um, the Knowledge Transfer Innovation Fund from the Scottish Government. So it's a fully funded project for the next four and a half years. Um, so we launched this one back in the autumn last year, looking to recruit nine new farms for the next four and a half years. Um, so we have launched them all now. So um, we have a really good geographical spread of nine farms across Scotland uh, that are mixed uh, solely livestock and arable businesses that are really looking to drive change on their farms. Um, we're obviously in a very turbulent time in agriculture, a lot of change is coming. Um, so the programme is really about driving knowledge exchange on farms. So that's peer to peer. The motto of the programme is farmer led, farmer driven. So it's an opportunity to encourage that on farms, but also bring in industry experts where the farmers think that that would be really beneficial to their systems. So. Um, I find it fascinating because I am a beef and sheep farmer myself as well. Um, I am from the Perthshire Hills, um, running commercial suckler cows and sheep. Uh, so it's great for me to get out onto all these different farms across the country, seeing all these different systems, um, different innovations, just different mindsets as well, um, and take that back home to the family farm. It's a really great opportunity. That's just literally a perfect job, that isn't it? You can basically go to your, uh... <laughs> The experts in the field, probably. Um, I get the daily, the daily rundown for, back from my grandparents and my dad. <laughs> that's it, yeah. That'll keep them happy. That'll keep them happy. Um, and finally, uh, the only person, I must say, I think, on the podcast today that is actually representing QMS with some merch on there, uh, <laughs> Tom. Oh, everyone is. They're just a wee bit too low on the camera. I see. <laughs> Sorry. I apologise. I apologise. I was quickly filled up on that one. Uh, <laughs> Tom, could you give us a bit about yourself, please? Certainly, Wallace. Hi, and thanks for having us on. Uh, Tom Gibson, I'm Director of Market Development at Quality Meat Scotland. I've been in post now for just over four years. Uh, but before that, I was Retail Marketing Manager at one of our big grocery retailers in Scotland with a couple of hundred stores. As part of that role, I also looked after promotion planning and our local sourcing projects as well, so managed that. And it was through that role that I started having my first interactions with QMS uh, and the farming industry. We wanted to really bring farming into the stores and tell more of the Scottish farming story. So uh, we would do things like sponsor AgriScot, uh, we would sponsor the young farmers at the Royal Highland Show. Uh, and it was through sponsoring of AgriScot that I was then dealing with QMS because I was trying to get the AgriScot Beef Farm of the Year's product into our store. So we started talking to QMS and that was the start of my relationship with QMS uh, at, back at that time. Uh, and then not long after that, there was uh, a role come up at QMS and that I had a chat with them about it and I joined uh, Market Development. So really my role at QMS looks after probably three main areas. One, the, our relationship with our grocery multiples and uh, high street retailers and butchers. Uh, so you can see where the links came in previously to that. I also deal with the relationships with our main processors and this sort of circle goes back to processors, into retailers, out to the consumer. 
Uh, and then thirdly, I also look after our export side of things. So what we do in terms of exports and how that fits in with some other industry bodies and, and working with them, Scottish Government, to promote exports uh, for Scottish red meat. I think that's that's such a massive part at the minute is exports for red meat. And, and what, I mean, I was going to throw a question out at some point, but you've sort of made it make sense at the minute, Tom, is with Brexit and whatever that means <laughs> i'm not a, i'm not a, a politics guy but um you know we're looking at different trade deals and whatnot and and what and i'm guessing i'm throwing this kind of out to all four of you you'd mentioned a thing as well kate um about sort of um making sure that standards are high making sure that welfare environmental standards are high and this isn't me saying that countries that we're signing trade deal, deals with aren't doing this the same standards but i think there's a lot of cases in which they're not what what do you think that means for the future of Scottish red meat, lamb, beef and pork? Um, do you think we're going to see a, a a major challenge there and sort of, well, it be fair to say, lower quality products coming in for lower prices and, and knocking us out of the market? I'm kind of putting that to everyone in fairness. <clears throat> yeah, do you want me to go first, Kate? Yeah. You, go, you go first, Tom. Yeah, I, I, we're certainly worried about it, Wallace. You know, we replied uh, to the consultations about the, the free trade agreements and, and, and gave our concerns to government. Uh, I, I was at a trade show with a few uh, Australian processors who were delighted when they heard the news that, you know, our markets would be opened up to them. And they said that would be a target for them, you know, but it uh, depends. We, we need to wait and see how that, that sort of plays out. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's certainly a concern that, that the markets could be open to products of lesser quality and probably along similar lines just now with Brexit, you know, we've got plenty of checks with product going out the way to Europe, but there's no checks for product coming in. And, you know, with in terms of disease and Kate would probably talk about that better than I could in terms of, of, of our, our veterinary experience. But, you know, there's a whole host of challenges and worries and concerns there about disease and uh, uh, not, no checks at our borders for product coming in at the minute from the EU. Yeah, and the biggest one of those, the biggest risk at the minute, I think, is um, the African swine fever, which is in Europe. Um, and it, it would appear that really we're at a great risk by not doing these checks of, of it getting here eventually. And that's definitely the last thing that we want. Um, each deal, I think, each of these free trade agreements has got has got pros and cons for both us and, and the other country. And I think actually it's the cumulative effect of all these deals that's going to be the biggest problem. So it's not each specific deal, although, you know, obviously we're not happy about opening, you know, opening up and, and letting everybody flood our market. But, you know, if it's just a New Zealand deal, we have a lot of, of quota for New Zealand lamb. Anyway, the deal might not make that much difference in the short term, although it probably will over the sort of 15 years that it's phased in. But it's not just that one, is it? It's the cumulative effect. And I think that's the problem. I sit on the Trade and Agriculture Commission to look at the standards um, of trade deals. And the problem is that we're tasked with looking at every trade deal in isolation. I don't know if anybody's looking at the total effect if you open your doors to everybody. And that's that's the issue. The ones that they're, they're in the process of looking at the minute are the, the CP. EPP deal, which is a lot of countries around about the Pacific uh, who form a sort of trading block, and also India. I think those are the next two that are on the horizon. But who knows what's going to come next after that? So, yeah, definitely some some definitely an area where we have to make sure that our standards stand up to everybody else's, so that we can make those claims with justification. 
was was that CPCPP? CPTPP. Well, there's a T in there, not a C. C. That <laughs> was very hard. They're just getting very confusing. When I worked at when I worked at Enterprise Rent a Car, they had a um, an anagram LMFCTCRERR, which is <laughs> Left message for customer to call regarding rental radio. Like, this is the most ridiculous thing ever. Like, but in fairness, it's still there four years on. <laughs> You're just going to ask me in a minute what it stands for, aren't you? And it's, I can't tell. tell what, what does it stand for? Yes, let's hear it. It's something to do. The, the TPP is Trans-Pacific Partnership. I, okay. I, I would have to look up with this. I can't, I can't remember what the C and the P stand for. But it's basically, it's, oh... New Zealand, Australia, Canada, Mexico, Peru, Malaysia, uh, Brunei, Chile. There's probably others that I've forgotten about, but there's quite a lot. They form a block much like we used to do with the EU, um, yeah. and and they do these deals together. So that's that's the next one really that the government are working on at the minute. I think it looked like Lucy knew it there. I think Lucy was going to report. I was going to say I'll, I'll hazard a guess that the C is central, but. <laughs> Oh, that would be, yeah, that, that'd make <laughs> well, like, you know, when, when we've talked about like trade deals and stuff like that, one thing that's always sort of jumped out to me is like their Cairns group. I always thought that would be a group, but you know, whatever you call it, Cairns, what's that? Brazil, India, Canada, and something else is it South Africa. Maybe I'm making this up entirely. Maybe this is not maybe trade based. Maybe this is more, well, maybe not agricultural trade based. Maybe it's something else. Um, so yeah, happy to admit I'm just talking a lot of nonsense, which as the listeners will know is, is pretty common. Um, we'll just move on from that so I don't look like an idiot and completely made something up there. But I'm going to Google it now and it's going to be something absolute rubbish. But anyway, it's fine. Um, I'm trying to show off as if I know things. Um, Lucy, what's what's a sort of, I assume it's different all the time, but what's a sort of day in the life of you at QMS like? Yeah, your face says it's a lot of things. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to be succinct as possible. I think this kind of, I've quite there's quite lots of ongoing projects. It's sort of a rolling program, I suppose. So one of my my focuses has been to build up um sort of calendar of events, meetings, stakeholder engagement. So I suppose those are things that are plotted in in advance um, across kind of local government, um the Scottish Parliament and UK Parliament and governments. Um, which I mentioned um, and then there are and then I suppose that's then padded out if you like with more ad hoc work that that comes up and you have maybe a sort of slight foresight of what might be coming but in terms of consultations um, so Tom's mentioned the the trade uh, the FTAs the future trade agreement deals you know those sorts of things they'll often there'll be committees such as the EFRA um, so the International Trade Committee down at the UK government who will put out a call for views, for example, on a specific FTA. Um, but then obviously there's, there's lots that um, cross over all sorts of different policy areas as well um, from environment, biodiversity, animal welfare. So those will sort of pop up as the, the year rolls on. Um, there are a lot last year. <laughs> um, so that, that'll be a case of responding as and when. And obviously those have deadlines. So it's planning the work accordingly. Um, in addition to that, I suppose it's, well, I mentioned the meetings, but there's other proactive work as well. Um, so part of my role is to, I suppose, coordinate and support the Scottish Red Meat Resilience Group, um, which is a group of industry stakeholders from across the Scottish Red Meat supply chain. Um, and 
each year the, the group looks at what the key focus areas are going to be um, in terms of I suppose common ground um, challenges and opportunities for the sector across these organizations and then the group may commission various pieces of work um, so last year there were various position papers such on education and skills opportunities for the sector um, and I lead a policy working group that would then sort of go and look at that in more detail um, Beth and I actually worked on one last year as well which was the education and skills um, so it's sort of a, a mixture of things, really. And there's, as I say, there's things that you can kind of plot ahead and then there's the things that pop up, which you have to <laughs> turn your attention to as and when. You just find yourself firefighting randomly when you were already an organised then suddenly... Slightly. Started. I know you think things have been a bit quiet recently and <laughs> then, you know, there's going to be an onslaught. <laughs> it's but, so true that there's nothing scarier than things being quiet. You're like, there's an issue here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. What, what have I missed? Um, you mentioned events right at the start of that, Lucy. What sort of events are you talking about? Is that like shows and that, or? So, well, for example, the Royal Highland Show, um, massive event in itself, and that's sort of led on in terms of the QMS presence by our marketing team. But I suppose I would use that as an opportunity to link up with key parliamentarians there, if possible. Um, we have recently had our own parliamentary reception, um, which was back in January, um, and that was held at Holyrood. Um, and that was to, this. the subject this year was to highlight the societal role of quality assured red meat. So we really wanted to highlight that the red meat sector in Scotland has an impact across portfolio areas and across re every region in Scotland and it's not just a sort of a rural affairs um, industry um, we're really highlighting the benefits that the sector has across the economy across local communities um, the environment um, and public health as well so that was a key event for us um, and one that we're going to run to every other year um, and then do some other engagement in the sort of fallow year if you like as well um, also run um, partnership events like so um there was one unfortunately postponed due to the um the queen's death and obviously the parliament's all shut down for a couple of weeks but that there was one that was about to go ahead there looking at the work that farmers are doing in biodiversity um enhancement so it's a variety really a variety of different things do you know at the, at the island show qms is one of my favorite stands it's up there with the b1 I love the B one, um, but the the you do the B dance when you're at school and you get free honey. It's great fun. But uh, <laughs> the the QMS was brilliant, really good. Doing the sort of the wee like I mean, seminars isn't the word, but the sort of wee cooking tutorials. That's what I absolutely yeah. love. Brilliant. Yeah, that's brilliant. Really good, and I can sort of learn and pretend I know how to cook because I do not. Uh, but it's quite handy. Um, Beth, you mentioned about monitor farms. Monitor farms seems to be a term that I've always heard and sort of, of been aware of. But what what's involved for for one for the those that are monitor farms, and and two sort of what is there like a sort of national benefit, if you will, to monitor farm programs? <clears throat> yes. Yeah, so the reason you probably heard of monitor farms is it's because it came over from New Zealand twenty years ago now. So that's when the initiative really uh, was established in Scotland. So um, it is a tried and proved program in Scotland, although we have been adapting it um, as the years have gone on. And um, I suppose a benefit to the monitor farmers, Kate would be the perfect example um, as a former monitor farmer herself. But um, so in terms of the, the structure of the program, obviously we've got nine monitor farms across the country. So what they are really doing 
is they are the focus farms or spotlight for nine different communities across the country. Um, so they are looking to trial different innovations. They are looking to really go in-depth data collection and look to where they can make changes and then showcase them to their local community. Um, but surrounding each monitor farm is a management group. So that's 10 to 12 businesses that are maybe similar enterprises to uh, or similar system to the monitor farm themselves, um, or they could be something completely different. But what they're looking to do is help the monitor farm look for different changes, look for different solutions, um, but also themselves are looking to develop their business. Um, so really it's a, a bit of a support group for each other to look for different uh, changes they could make to their businesses. And they're also collecting data um, to look to benchmark and um, baseline different things uh, and see where they can make improvements for their own business. And then there's the, the benefit to the wider community as well of the case studies that are coming out of the monitor farm, the learnings, um, and not just from that specific area maybe, but um, perhaps there might be learnings that could be in Sterling that are beneficial to the, the monitor farm that we've got up in Buchan. Um, if there's similar enterprises there or they're, they're maybe facing a, a similar um, health challenge, for example. So there's that real collaboration between all the farms throughout the country. It's a, it's a network of farmers. It's a network of specialist support um, that we're looking to build up and create resources for farmers to really tap into and um, utilise for themselves. I didn't actually realise that it was like sort of uh, different regions. I knew they'd obviously be dotted around the place, but I didn't realise it was set for that intentionally. That makes much more sense because I, I don't know, just in my head, like the ones I'm aware of are ones that are near me just by the nature of the fact they're near me um, over the course of time. Um, is, is the data that's used used for the bigger picture as well? So is it then sort of used as benchmarks for farms the country over or is it only used for monitor farms? Yeah, so what we're looking to do currently ongoing on each monitor farm um, every monitor farm is completing an integrated land management um, plan at the moment and soil sampling so that and they will be doing a carbon audit as well. So that's three key areas of baseline data collection specifically for the monitor farms. And then what we're looking to do on top of that is develop um, some benchmarking for the management groups to, as well to feed into so not only are we getting that um, geographical comparison of benchmarking, but actually you could compare against every suckler cow herd that's uh, putting in data for the management groups in the country. And um, so you can we can see maybe uh, seasonal trends, geographical trends as well. Um, but what we can do with that data is then um, highlight that and learnings if where we are seeing trends for to, to feed into Lucy's work, for example, and um, that then can feed further back up as well. Excellent, excellent. Um, I'm going to throw a pretty rubbish question at yourself, Tom, purely because your job is so above my level of understanding. I'm just going to ask you to tell me what sort of, basically go over in layman's terms for someone like myself or a few of my listeners, I think it would be fair to say. Sorry if you're one of those listeners. I didn't say your names. Uh, you know who you are if I'm saying it. Um, what what's sort of involved in your job? You sort of skimmed skimmed over it earlier, um, but what, what's involved in your job and like what I guess what role you're playing towards QMS? <clears throat> okay, so my job really is based around engagement with industry and engagement with uh, all types of industry. So 
uh, are all stakeholders across the industry, Wallace. You know, I will sit on the Scotland Food and Drink Export Board, the Scotland Food and Drink UK Market Development Board, uh, and also on the Strategy Board for, for Scotland Food and Drink going forward. So we play a very strong part in that. I'll also have a lot of dealings with Scottish Development International, which is really the international exporting side of Scottish enterprise. So as part of QMS, we will fund or part fund uh, 16 in-market specialists around the world. So I'll speak to them on a regular basis. So we'll have people throughout Europe, people throughout North America and in Asia uh, that some of the partnership uh, bodies, Scottish Government and SDI help fund them as well. Speaking to them on a regular basis about, you know, current customers that we have and potentially building new customer bases out there if required. Another big part of my role is, you know, managing the big trade shows. So we, there's a, a real big trade show every year, once a year, just finished in Seattle in Paris in October. Uh, and then this year we're at Anuga in Cologne. So that means us taking along, basically, we're, last year in Paris, we called it Team Scotland. There was 45 of us in total. So that was that was a group of chefs and kitchen staff. That was Cabinet Secretary Mary Goujon. That was Scottish Government Head of Agriculture, George Burgess. That was eight different processors sending 25, 26 staff to come on our stand and sell product. Uh, and it was all about, you know, coordinating that and getting that over there. There's a massive meat hall, which is probably about the size of the exhibition centre in Glasgow, where the, the, the whole focus is just meat. So there's a real big part of that in terms of the job as well. But we also do other things like uh, we, we do also engage with DIT for UKGov. Uh, and I'll also speak to different interested processors if they're looking at different markets we can supply them with different uh, marketing information and mar information about the markets uh, so it's things like that as well as speaking to retailers on a regular basis so myself and marketing director Leslie Cameron we'll sit down with retailers and say look what's your retail strategy how for for scotch this this summer in particular you know what are you doing for barbecue can we help is it steaks is it burgers you're promoting and we can tie some of our marketing around the scotch to to try and tie in with that and then a lot of it is, is is speaking to the processors as well to say look this is what we're doing with the retailers because different processors, as you know, supply different retailers. So it's really just trying to sit in the middle of the whole picture and join the dots and make sure that we're linked up and then speak to our colleagues back from the farming side. You know, we'll also bring tours over here. We've got a team from France coming over of retailers and chefs coming over in June and we'll take them out to farms. We'll take them to processors, let them see our quality assurance standards. So we cover a wide range of things, Wallace, but uh, it's it, it's uh, it keeps us busy. It sounds like a daft question, you know, you bringing, bringing folk from France, uh, going to Germany, going to France. Are you doing these things in this country as well? Are you looking at sort of exporting within the country? No, I mean, but just sort of international uh, trade. Is that what we what we'll do? Is we'll, yeah, it, it really depends on the processors that we work with or the wholesalers that we work with. What is their objectives? You know, can they get the supply of Scots? Do they have that supply of premium product to maybe look at a London market? And then we're speaking to people about doing events there. It's bringing wholesalers up to Scotland to, to actually meet the processors or visit the farms up here. Just trying to be the conduit in the middle. But it really depends on the individual uh, requirements of the customer in terms of, you know, someone else in the UK or the processor where they want to go or what they, what are the, the wholesaler, where their focus is. And we try and support that as best we can. I must say an exhibition site, centre size, room of just different meat products does sound fantastic that sounds it like is. you got to see it you got to see it to believe it 
I mean, if you're needing a person that looks very Scottish, feel free to bring me along. <laughs> Just me in the, in the Can you play the bagpipes? You're in. Um, no, but I'm sure I could find someone that could and I could just sort of carry the phone around. <laughs> I have no discernible talent, uh, so I'm useless in that sense. I just look that way. Um, so, so general, you know, just promoting the product elsewhere, make sure we're getting that story out there. Um, a question for, uh, Kate, you'd mentioned about promotion earlier when you were, let's see if I can get this right, when you were mentioned that you were a non-departmental public body. Nope. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, God. And that is a proud moment for me. I'm not going to lie. I'm going to clip that one itself. Um, looking at promotion, what, what's involved to these these big sort of things that you're talking about there, Tom, are, are sort of industry-based, yeah? What what promotions are you doing aimed at the masses, the consumer, the, the person that wants to buy meat to eat themselves, not the business sort of that's going to be selling it on? What are you doing on that side of things? So I suppose what we want to do is when people are, are standing in in the supermarket or in the butchers or wherever and deciding what to buy, we want we want them to buy scotch. That's what we want them to buy. And I think people, they need quite a lot of reassurance that they're they're making the right choice. You know, so local is a big thing. We want to reassure people that what they're buying is local and, and a lot of people like that. But we also want to reassure them if they're worried about animal welfare, that if they buy our, our brands that they can be assured that the animals have been treated really well you know if they're worried about their their health we want to get those sort of messages out to make sure they realize that red meat is actually really good for them um, that it's got all these vitamins and minerals that you can't get elsewhere and that it should be part of a, of a healthy balanced diet it's a, it's a really vital part of that so I suppose it's about using the the evidence that we've got to to try and get that across to consumers to make sure that when they have that choice they choose ours and and going back to the conversation on the the free trade agreements and things as well it's about saying you know if you've got the choice of new zealand lamb or australian beef or scotch then these are the reasons why you should be picking up the scotch now it might be that it's the same price it might be that it's more expensive but we have to justify you know why that is the best thing to pick uh, when you're standing there in front of that shelf. It's, it's quite tricky to do that in the sense that you're also trying to export. So you're almost sort of being the New Zealand lamb in another country. And it, you've almost got two marketing strategies. And that, is that right? You see, so you're yeah. going to have your strategy for Scotland. Uh Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. We have. I mean, consumers here are worried about some, you know, they're worried about some things, the things I've just said, things like sustainability consumers in other countries aren't necessarily worried about the same thing so so Tom and I were lucky enough a few years back to go across to a big food show in Japan and right. we were expecting the concerns of the Japanese to be the same as as the consumers here but actually they were much more concerned about food safety and food traceability than they were about things like sustainability so um, a lot of what we do and what Tom's job is is finding really what the what the button to push is in, in the countries that we're going to you know there's no point in going across to Japan with a big campaign about sustainability if, if all they're really worried about is food safety so it's it's about it's about giving the right messages to the right people at the right times and in the right places and that that's at home as well you know we we're not allowed to market to children but what we are allowed to do is is work with like Sarette and going to schools and help educate them about red meat and about farming and about where their food comes from so it's it's given the right messages to those sort of people um 
one of the examples that I've been given recently is that my daughter's very, my daughter's 24, she's very into going to the gym, wanting to look, you know, beautiful and healthy and everything. Um, so the, re- the message that she wants to get is about how red meat is good for your health and how it's going to make you, you know, fit and strong and, and, and be good for you. So it, messages like that to those people and then you've maybe got I don't know 30 some things with a young family and the sort of messages we want to get across there are all the same messages but also about how you can make your red meat go further what exciting recipes you can use with it and why you should make it part of your sort of everyday staple when you go to the shops one of the the big things you know from a health perspective you said your daughter goes to gym there I don't look like it but I actually do go to the gym and I'm quite enjoying like learning about human nutrition you've lost like loads that. of weight recently well let's see looking pretty good <laughs> for those listening I've lost a sack of tatties I've lost 25 kg over the last three years four years um but uh yeah it's been quite a busy time in the last few months but this is not what I wanted to talk about anyway <laughs> uh, there's there's a one of the main supplements that people that are are working out, especially doing sort of like calisthenics, CrossFit based workouts, is CLAs, so like conjugated linoleic acid, which really does assist with control and cholesterol. And there's quite high content in red, in red meat, from what I understand. Um, that's certainly what I've been doing. From I've found out from a bit of research I've been doing lately. So uh, that's one thing. But there's there's lots of lots of benefits to red meat. This, I mean, you know, protein content. So you, you keep going for a while. Um, Tom, I feel like you were raising your hand a minute ago. Maybe I was wrong. I felt no, no. I was just want to point out, Wallace, that you know, <clears throat> I think when we look at imports come in to the the country and and it's you know sometimes of questionable quality in terms of compared to what we are uh, producing here, you know. Uh, but when we go out and export product to the world. We're exporting really high quality product in terms of Scotch beef. You know, our product is landing and ending up in Michelin star restaurants across Europe. You know, most of our product still goes to Europe. We do have uh, have a product that goes to uh, areas outside. You know, so Canada has been really strong recently. Uh, Japan's been strong. Hong Kong's been strong. But at the end of the day, our main market still is the EU. And across, you know, Italy, France, Netherlands, Belgium, Germany were really, really strong in, in high-end retail butcher-type environments and also through food service, through Michelin star and, and high-end food service restaurants as well. So we're exporting a, a value, a high-value product, which drives value back through the supply chain. Uh, we're not a commodity producer. You know, we, we say that straight up from the word go. It's all about quality and not quantity in terms of our exports. So uh, and, and we're very clear when we when we talk about that. Uh, and lamb now, 90, 99%, I think lamb just about goes to Europe at the minute uh, as well. I think beef's probably about um, 89, 90, I think, is the current numbers. But, you know, I think the interesting thing, we touched on Brexit earlier on, it's how that's changed uh, in terms of where we're going with, with our exports. So more carcasses, full carcasses being exported just because it's easier to do export health certificates. If you look at at where we're at. And one of the real problems with Brexit was how we've lost this uh, groupage. Companies doing groupage, the smaller exporters have been pushed out of the market. And it's now some of the main exporters that can control their own trucks going over there and control their own export health certification requirements. So Brexit's posed an awful lot of challenges, not, don't even want to touch on or we shall touch on, you know, the labour issues that it's given us in terms Uh, of how we've got people in production, food, not just not just red meat, food production across across the country. And it's given us some real challenges in terms of the volumes and throughput that we've got. But, 
you know, we've pretty much bounced back post-Brexit. I think we were just nearly at our, our highest year. I think pre-Brexit and pre-COVID was about 80, uh, 2018, 2019. And I think we're just about shy a million quid of that last year in terms of exports. So uh, okay. it's, it's, it's coming back. It's coming back. Uh, and I think with the success of the trade shows that we've seen last year and the demand for product that's out there, because there's still a real firm demand for beef throughout Europe and the world, interestingly, uh, that we, we feel in a really strong place to, to see how that can grow. It's interesting you say about the export percentage there, because I mean, I, I thought lamb would have quite a high export into Asia, you know, for your Eid Mubarak, that sort of thing. Um, that's quite interesting. Do you, do you have any idea what the, the pork one is? Pork, pork from, from Scotland is pretty insignificant in terms of, you know, direct from, from Scotland. Some products may go down, uh, some pigs may go down to England and then right. may be exported for there. But we're ju- we just, uh, we gauge this through a Scottish exporter survey. So it's difficult to gauge that if they're coming from, from some of the English companies. Got you. Got you. That makes sense. That makes sense. Um, a, a few of you have mentioned, you know, Kate, you mentioned you're not allowed to market to kids, which makes sense. But I think that education side is important. And unfortunately, we're supposed to have Alex in here. And I think Alex is the expert on that side of things. But I'll maybe put this out to all four of you because I don't know who's best to answer on this one. Um, what, why, I guess, more importantly, why is it important for you to be getting involved with the likes of Ray and educating at that age? I would just like to quickly interrupt the show for a minute to give you some extra information on our primary sponsors, A-Plan Rural. A-Plan offer bespoke cover for farms and estates, the UK over, and will give you tailored insurance for anything on the farm, from your old workhorse tractor that's been around 20 years, or a fancy new and exciting diversification. Go on, Lucy, you're looking like you're going to answer. <laughs> <laughs> I'm obviously, as you say, Alex is um, the, the expert, but just from kind of the, as I, I've already mentioned, the piece of work we did around education and skills for the sector, I think there's a number of things. One of them being, I think, just as a society, we're maybe becoming increasingly disassociated or disconnected from where our food comes from. Um, and that can lead to all sorts of different uh, opinions and sentiments and direction of travel further down the line. And I also think that the sector itself, you know, needs grassroots incomers, um, or not not necessarily from a um, right from the bottom, but just new entrants through, throughout um, all parts of the the supply chain. And I think unfairly it has been portrayed as a sector that's maybe quite sort of old school in terms of technology, maybe slow moving, whereas actually there's a lot of really exciting, innovative things going on. And particularly with the spotlight that it's under in terms of um, biodiversity and climate change, et cetera, you know, there's, there's lots, um, lots of work to do, but lots of work being done. Um, and I think, you know, that it's a sector that, that is right at the cutting edge and the forefront of development there. Um, but this is perhaps, there's a bit of a link, I think, between, schools which then obviously feeds into higher and you know, third education and then the sector itself so it's how to sort of bridge that gap really um and then of course it comes into the, the nutritional side of things as well and, and individual health and health as a society but i think for skills and opportunities um it's really important that that it's um featured in schools 
No, absolutely. And I mean, working in education and agriculture, some of the technologies involved are so advanced. Like, you know, you sit and you think of farming and you think the most advanced thing on the farm is a tractor. Like, wow, it's one of the simplest things now, you know. Um, there's yeah, there's a, a massive gap in the, the knowledge of the sector. I don't strictly mean a gap in the knowledge for those that are important to it, but just understanding how food appears in their in their house and you made a good point about people not knowing where their food comes from and I can't remember who it was I think it was a guy Luke Ablett I recorded with uh, the 74th episode um, that made a really good point where we sort of have this idea that people don't really know where their food comes from and uh, I've said this a million times like you know a story I heard my ex's friend had posted a, a little thing on Facebook that was really cute but also worrying at the same time he'd said um oh, the eggs are different. And she was like, oh, they're from just the farm that we can see. And he was like, I don't want eggs from a farm. I want them from Aldi. And like, that's quite cute. You know, we boy like, not want these eggs. And, and I know you guys aren't egg-based, but the same story sits there. But Luke made a really good point when he said that there's this idea that we don't, like the masses don't know where their food comes from. It comes from a supermarket. And we've sort of got this idea that it's coming from that. But to a lot of people now, especially kids through COVID and whatnot, the supermarket's not even part of that supply chain because it's dropped off at the door. You know, food comes from the fridge now. It's not even further than that. It's, it's quite a, a scary thought, you know, that, that, that farming's almost nothing to do with it. And, and yeah, but... I think, I think it's hard. It's hard to overestimate how disassociated people are with their food, particularly in this country. I mean, we were, my husband and I were on holiday in Iceland last year and we got into the taxi at Reykjavik airport and the chap there was talking to us about, he found out we were farmers and he was talking to us about the sheep gatherings that were happening in Iceland. And it just struck me that if you got into a taxi in Glasgow, what are the chances that the taxi driver would know anything about anything that was happening on farms in Scotland? And what, what we kind of learned was that really in Iceland, even the people in Reykjavik are only probably three generations away from the farm. So probably their grandparents were, all, were in agriculture, you know, in some way. They were, they were at, least, at least rural. But when you think about the people in cities here, a lot of them could be six, seven, yeah. eight generations away from, from the rural world. So you can't really blame them for not understanding it, you know. And there's so many things going on these days you people can't know everything so it's really important that we can get out there particularly with, with kids who are just you know who just soak up knowledge and explain about all these things um because if we're wanting people to make proper informed decisions about their diets and their lifestyles they've got to understand them right from that basic point they can't just you know you, you don't want to have to rely on a, a 15 second tiktok video for somebody to decide that they they don't want to eat meat anymore you know they need to have that education right from the start it's very true you know we can't expect them to know everything i don't know everything about the construction industry why do we need to know about farming you know that's there's always that there's also that question as well and maybe we just need to do a good job of making sure that the positive story has been posted and you say there about tiktok like Maybe it's not the best thing, but it's how people consume content. You know, is, yeah. is, is that a thing you guys do? Do you do like sort of Instagram, that sort of stuff? Is that side of it? Yeah, yeah. so there's there's all those different channels. But Alex, who, who who should be here tonight, she's part of a very small health and education team. There's just her and, her and Jen, the two of them. Um, and they've developed a huge array of stuff online um, to, to help teachers, to help parents, um, just for everybody. So the big, the big 
piece of work was something called Farming Food Steps, which takes brilliant. you through, yeah, takes you through every sort of step from, from farm to fork. There's lesson plans in there, there's games, it's all interactive. Um, there's a, a video called The Circle of Life, which kind of explains it. And there's loads and loads of interactive ways to learn there. So it's actually aimed at children, but it's really good for adults as well, you know, because there's so many adults out there that, that don't know either. So, yeah, really, really good. We've got a whole bank of stuff there. So if anybody is interested, go look for Farming Food Steps. Claire, it's, uh, okay, it sounds like you play that at night. It's, 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 <laughs> you found know. my guilty secret. <laughs> no, but in truth, I mean, I was with, I've been with Rhett for a while and it was brilliant. Uh, a fantastic tool, a uh, resource, whatever you want to call it. Absolutely excellent. Um, I, you mentioned about, uh, funnily enough, about the gather in Iceland. Uh, if you are listening to the podcast and you think, what's Kate talking about? It's quite interesting. It's a thing called Retier, which basically is just a big, massive bit of land where they then come together in what I would call a fang. So I don't know if anyone else would call it that, but basically just a big gap of gates and they get the right shape and it's just a bit of a piss up from what I understand but it looks like a really good time if you do want to go and listen to someone who farms in Iceland I have had someone on so Articast I think it was 19 I had uh, uh, Paulina Njordvik on uh, and she talked about Retty it was really interesting she showed me a photo there's a point in this sort of episode where I managed to look up maps on my phone and you see yeah a massive part I mean it's like something like a 50th of Iceland that the bit covers like it's huge um what I was going to say, getting excited about um, Icelandic farming. Um, oh, it's, uh, yes. Um, speaking about sort of promotion there, say um, more Wallace, uh, <laughs> do it again. Speaking of promotion, um, Beth, you've been involved with the uh, QMS podcast. Um, I'm guessing maybe other people have as well. Could you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so the podcast started um, back in, in lockdown, really, and it was a way f- another way for us to connect with um, the farming industry. So um, it's largely aimed at um, farming and the industry rather than being public facing. And it looks to be quite technical, different topics. Um, we had a, an array of speakers. I think the highlight for me was uh, the international uh, series that we did. Um, so we had people like Tom Gubbins from Tamania Angus over in Australia who talked about genetics. We had Ray Archuleta on to talk about soil health and agriculture. Um, we had um, yeah, various international speakers talking about things that are um, relatable to back over here in Scotland. And then also speaking to Scottish farmers and experts um, about different, um, different things that they're trying. So whether that was health related or different grazing te- techniques. Um, so... The, I think the next podcast series is probably going to be on soil health. And I think that's largely because of the first round of Monitor Farm meetings. Um, farmers are really starting to turn to look at the, the health of the soil, um, regardless if they are growing grass or they are growing a crop in there. Um, it was a fundamental theme that came out of all the meetings um, in that first round. Um, so I think um, likely look at that for, for the next podcast series, seeing as it's something that folk are, are really looking at, dig down first to then look at how you can increase productivity above above the ground as well. It's the basis for what everything's built on, isn't it? Like, we're not producing anything without it. Um, my knowledge is embarrassingly low of soil, but 
uh, feel free to plug the podcast if you want. It's called the QMS Podcast, isn't it? Yeah, it is called the QMS Podcast and it's available on the QMS website or on Apple Podcasts or wherever you, Spotify, wherever you might find your podcast. Excellent. So if you look up farming, it'll probably pop up before this. <laughs> <laughs> if you look up QMS though, so actually, do you know what? You should look up QMS Podcast because then this episode will come up. Uh, <laughs> this feels like we're trying to steal views off each other. Um, it's it's a how to explain this. QMS has been a thing that I've always been aware of. You know, ever since I was a kid, with no interest in farming, mum and dad would have mentioned it. It would have been it's been there forever. What I'm not really sure how I'm trying to word this. Over the course of time, how has QMS changed, and what's it sort of looking to move into in the future? Are things looking to change in the future? Or is, is the sort of the status quo still working? Does that make sense? I, I, I haven't worded that great, but <clears throat> so so I suppose you're right, it has absolutely evolved. I mean, it used to be that it was the and this is before my time as well, I think it was MLC that used to collect the levy, you know, it was SFQC or Squabla or something that set up the assurance schemes. So over time, QMS has sort of become the umbrella organization for these two different functions. And I think if there wasn't a QMS, the first thing that people would be doing is trying to set up a body that could help promotion, that could help with quality assurance, you know? So I think we do fulfill a really vital, really vital role. Uh, and also as a, we're not, we're not lobbyists definitely, but we do advocate for, for the red meat industry, you know, with government, with, councils with everybody we're 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 fulfilling that advocacy role as well in the future i mean the the big thing that we're all aiming towards i suppose as a nation at the minute is net zero that's that's the real headline i mean there's lots and lots of things going on underneath um that but but we're all sort of got our, got our eyes on 2030 and then 2045 for for net zero and it, i think it's really important that farmers are doing loads of things for for the environment for sustainability to get towards net zero we're all doing lots and lots of things and at the minute it's quite difficult to get that message across to the the public and to actually find a way to capitalize on that so i think where we probably have to go in the future and the, a lot of the work that we're, we're we're undertaking starting at the minute is to try and make sure that consumers understand what farmers are doing and that they've got a way to reward that um, through through our brands um, in it, eventually um, so that if they are concerned about greenhouse gas emissions, about environmental sustainability, about biodiversity, that our brands are, are their sort of first port of call and that that then gets back to the farmer, to the primary producer on the ground, that, you know, that the money that they're prepared to spend to support those things gets back to the primary producers. So I think it's a. I think we're we're kind of evolving, obviously, um, because the world's evolving because consumers are looking for different things, and so we have to change what we're doing. You know, as as Lucy said, we didn't have a huge political presence um, for quite a while, but we've identified that we need to be speaking to far more than just Mary Goujon. We need to be speaking to people in health and in education and in the economy so that they all understand the benefits that the red meat sector brings to the whole of Scotland. Um, so yeah, we're evolving all the time. 
exports were gone for such a long time because of things like BSE and Tom's doing such a lot of work to you know push that on as much as possible and help the the exporters get the product out there and find new customers and policies changing really quickly you know we we all know that Scottish government are in the process of developing a new policy and the the industry development team and the monitor farms in particular are going to be really really important vehicles for getting those sort of messages out and helping people adapt and make the changes that are coming down the line. Does the UK and Scottish government care about the meat sector? Um, we don't, I personally don't have an awful lot of uh, uh, communication with the UK government, so yeah. I, I wouldn't like to answer that. But I do know that the Scottish government does our cabinet secretary is very supportive of everything that we do, and I think that can be evidenced by things like the the Monitor Farm grant that is, you know, has come entirely from Scottish government. I think, I think we're getting the message across that the red meat sector is part of virtually every well every constituency in Scotland. You know, will have something to do with the red meat sector, whether it's primary producers, whether it's processors whether it's butchers, you know, every, it touches every single part of Scotland. And I think we are getting that message across and they are politicians are starting to understand how important it is and that it's the bedrock of the of the rural economy. You know, as a, as a farmer, we, we get support. Obviously, we get support coming in from the government, um, but it doesn't just come into our bank account and then we spend it on ourselves. I always like to say that I feel a bit like Father Ted, if anybody's seen that, the money just rests very briefly in my account before it goes out to, to everybody else in the sector. So, you know, you're paying vets, you're paying feed suppliers, you're paying fencers. Um, so it absolutely is the, the bedrock of the of the rural economy. So I think I think they do understand that. And I think we just all need to keep um, banging that message home, how important it is. I've just realised it was quite a, probably quite a weighted question and it wasn't in any way a politics-backed weighted question because I have no opinion on politics. I, honestly, I'm rubbish at politics. So <laughs> um, if if anyone was listening thinking, oh, he's saying that because he doesn't like Nicola Sturgeon. Or, by the time this comes out, I don't think Nicola Sturgeon will be there. Or, oh my God, I can't remember the Prime Minister's name, Rishi Sunak, that's how bad <laughs> I am. <laughs> it's, it's not that at all. Uh, just just a genuine question that's quite a, a refreshing response i guess kate it's, it's nice to hear and and think that that's that's the sort of the thought that our government has given it when we consider sort of carbon you know next zero is our big thing 2020 sorry 2045 for scotland 2050 for england um i've been on record on the podcast quite a few times saying that there's i'm not calling out um any carbon calculators because i wouldn't have a clue how to make a carbon calculator but I struggle to see how an extensive, let's say, Scotch lamb or Scotch beef producing system, let's let's use QMS speak, and I'm not ruling out specially selected pork here, I just don't think it's quite as, as, uh, as, as relatable for this example. I don't know how that system can't be a good system from a carbon perspective. I really struggle to see how that you've got synthetic, uh, very little synthetically transported water, fed on ground that's not been synthetically transported, for the most part, yeah, they're probably going to come in and in buy and that sort of thing. Apart from your hauling, your treatment, there's so little sort of carbon expending tasks in that. And that, I struggle with the, the fact that 
that are, and this sounds like I'm calling out dairy, etc. I'm not, but I struggle with the fact that a 360 house dairy system is better from a carbon perspective than that extensive hill sheep system. Um, and you might have different opinions on that, but I really do struggle with that. And I think moving towards that sustainability and promoting that sustainability um, as our not commodity, as you said, Tom, is this sort of prime product to be exported, I think has got to stand in our favour. Absolutely. I mean, this is the Scotland is the absolutely ideal place to to produce sheep and cattle. Um, it's a grass based system, like you say. We've got water a plenty, uh, sometimes too much. We've got we grow grass really well. Eighty percent of the country couldn't grow anything else but grass because it's not that kind of land. And it really is our moral obligation to produce the food as much food as we can here for you know, as many people as possible. Um, I always think with water in particular, if you're buying food from countries that are lacking water and it's, it's it, there's a lot of water being used to, to grow that crop or produce that meat or whatever, you're basically stealing water from other people, from people who don't have enough of it. So it's really our duty to produce what we can here. And if you focus too narrowly on greenhouse gas emissions and they are just numbers. They are, you know, they're all concepts. They're not, I know they're real, but, you know, a lot of the carbon calculators, a cow produces this, you know, X amount of greenhouse gases. Every cow's different. We're all different. You know, none of these nuances are often, seem to be taken into account very often. So we need to make sure that what calculators we're using, first of all, are work for our country and are taking into account all the, the good things that we are doing. And then we need to look far more widely than just greenhouse gas emissions. And we need to look at um, biodiversity and all the different ways that farming can help biodiversity um, and, and sustainability in rural economies as well. So yeah, you're absolutely right. We're nowhere near as a, as a international community having a really accurate proper carbon calculator that takes into account all the different things it needs to. And we're working kind of half blind at the minute. Um, we've, the, the Red Meat Resilience Group commissioned quite a big project called the, the Net Zero Pathway, which Lucy is in charge of. So I'm going to hand over to Lucy <laughs> to just say a few words. We're just in the process of doing that just now. We're nowhere near the end of it, but maybe Lucy can say one or two words about that. Um, yeah, of course. And just a slight caveat that um, it's uh, my team member who is fully involved in the steering group. Um, but yes, yeah, so following a, a piece of work that was commissioned by the Red Meat Resilience Group, as Kate said, which um, looked at the official word is the net zero and nature restoration roadmap for the sector. So that set out kind of where the sector is where it needs to be and how it's going to get there. Um, following that, which I think was published um, just over a year ago, possibly, the steering group has been set up um, and the work is being led by SRUC and SAC Consulting to really look at that in, in detail. Um, they've just, they've been in the process of, I suppose, doing literature reviews, really diving deep into the lay of the land as it is. And I suppose, their actions and the next steps are putting into to actionable activities that can be tailored on a farm by farm basis because what they've sort of highlighted is you can't just have a broad set of like, menu I suppose that needs to be applied to every business you know that every farming system is nuanced and different things will have a better effect in different places 
Um, so that work has been ongoing, as I say, and I think later on this year there'll be clearer steps. Is that right, Kate? I'm not um, entirely sure of the, the timing, but that has been a huge piece of work and will be really relevant for, for the sector. Um, and just kind of picking up on what Kate was talking about in terms of this global data, um, I think that that's really key because so recently, I don't know if it's been on your radar, but Edinburgh City Council endorsed the plant-based treaty, which is a, a global treaty. Um, and lots of the statistics that were referenced in that are global. And lots of the countries that have signed up already are based, sorry, cities are based in India. And then there's also LA, et cetera. So Edinburgh is obviously a very different climate um, to those. So I think that it's really important for us to do a lot of myth busting um, and really drill down to the nuance of food production systems because there isn't a blanket uh, status quo, I suppose, of that. Um, and again, that feeds into food security, which I think you know, from the events last year, which obviously brought a lot of challenges in terms of input costs and, and other things, the one slight positive, I suppose, for the sector was that food security was really firmly put on the agenda. And I don't think there has been such a, a buzzword around that, that phrase for a long time. So the UK government, Scottish government, you know, whatever they decide to do, obviously UK government has implemented its agricultural policy, but they're under a lot of pressure and scrutiny to make sure that it doesn't affect um, food security either as, as a UK um, or, or an individual nation at Scotland level. So that's that's something that always has to be taken account and balanced, I suppose, with biodiversity enhancement and um, emissions reduction as well. It was it was quite interesting to see food security come to the forefront. I don't know if you know Lucy, but my master's in food security, and uh, the um, so quite quite topical. Uh, but when when Ukraine happened, as you said, it wasn't the thing we wanted to happen to make food security come out. But we now have heard about food security. I mean, people. This is a bit of an exaggeration, but folk would say, "What's food security? Is that yeah. in, the, in the fridge?" You know, like what you know. So, like it's 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 good to know that that's out there and we're talking about it. I liked what you said about there's no blanket solution to this. Like, and that is the truest thing. And um, like I, I saw a post. I'm from the Isle of Arran. I'm still in the community bits, and there's an Arran Vegan Society, and they they're doing a they're doing a sort of film get together looking at cowspiracy. And uh, I commented saying something like, oh, this would be really fun. I really want to come along. It sounds interesting. Because I've many a time said that veganism is not a negative thing. There's so many places in which veganism makes sense. Places like Ukraine, places that are producing huge amounts of plant-based proteins. Um, but from an environmental perspective, it doesn't make sense here. Animal welfare-wise, uh, health-wise, personal choice, 100%. But if you're going an environmental one, it really doesn't make sense. And you, you'd said... Uh, Kate earlier about you know it's not just going to be carbon it's got to be biodiversity it's got to be strengthening rural communities that sort of thing and that's so true and and we had <clears throat> with with SRUC we took students to Northern Ireland last year in June and uh, first off it was really refreshing I felt like Northern Irish government just cared about farmers I felt like it was so pushed it was brilliant that was nice but we went to the Hill and Upland Centre I think it's called Hill and Upland yeah, Hill and Upland Centre uh, through CAFE, which is like the university out there. And they've developed this system of sort of making biodiversity tangible. You know, for a farmer, when they hear you've got increased biodiversity, they're like, yeah, but what I get out of it? And that makes sense. You know, it's their land. It's, they've got, a, you know, they've got a benefit as well. 
and they're looking at how you can monetize biodiversity, monetize water capture, monetize carbon sequestration. And it was so interesting. And if you haven't been, I would I would advise it might be worthwhile for QMS to go over and see because I think what they're doing is brilliant. Um, and the water thing you said about sort of stealing water from maybe stealing is the wrong word, but you know what I mean? Places that really don't have it. That one statistic I remember from my master's was it takes four to six thousand liters of water to produce a kilo of rice, a product literally living in water, and it takes eleven to thirteen thousand liters to produce a kilo of beef. So for every kilo of beef, you're getting quite a few kilos per animal. If that's not being transported, the saving from a carbon perspective is astronomical. Um, hence the sort of water comments earlier. Uh, and just remember that rice fields produce quite a lot of methane as well. You know, everybody yeah. thinks it's all cows, but there's actually quite a lot of methane comes from rice fields as well. And yeah. and just just sorry to jump in, but just to, to go on that, I remember having a conversation with um, James Wong, is uh, a botanist uh, that's on the telly sometimes at the Oxford Farming Conference. And we were talking about almonds and he'd said it takes um, a gallon of water to produce an almond, which was, you know, wow, where did that come from? But then actually when you, when you look at, and this is where nuance is important, he said, if you get in a California almond, um, they're using the water in the aquifers underneath the ground and they're using it all up. They'd, you know, it's going to be gone. Okay. Yep. So that's not sustainable. But if you buy an almond from Spain, it's much more sustainable because they're using rain and, and it's, you know, the, it's much more sustainable. So not only is it about whether you want to buy almond milk rather than ordinary milk, it's about where the almond milk comes from. And it's exactly the same for, for beef and lamb. It's about where it comes from. And there's a real difference in, in all over the place. Did you say a gallon per almond? Yeah, I think that's what he said. A gallon of water per almond was what it, it was. Yeah. I don't know yeah. how many almonds there is to the kilo, but I would assume, <laughs> like, what, probably six, five hundred? Uh, I, I have no idea. I've never had almond milk in my life, no. and I don't like marzipan, but, but they. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't, I'm with you. That's another discussion to get into, you know, is, is, is almond milk milk and all that sort of thing. I personally think it is, but it's a massive discussion. Um, now here, listen, guys, I don't know if you noticed, we've actually been speaking for, for an hour and a quarter. Um, it sort of flies by and you're having fun, and I love hearing these stories. It's really interesting. Um, there's Kate, you'll have done the sort of final two questions to the, the original podcast, but slightly different. And it, first off, say if there's anything we've missed and you really want to get in before, before we finish. But um, there's two questions I sort of ask everyone at the end of the podcast. And, and the first one is one, where do you see yourself? And I do mean yourself because this is uh, the R2Cast People in Food and Farming Group podcast. Um, where do you see yourself in five years? And uh, secondly, if someone in the street had never heard of QMS had said, what's QMS? How would you quickly explain that to them? So Lucy, purely because you're first on the, the line, might just see how your face as I say that. Uh, give us where do you see yourself in five years and how do you quickly explain QMS? Oh gosh, um, I definitely <laughs> still see myself working in the agri food sector, hopefully still in the kind of public affairs strategy um, policy arena because I find it fascinating and I think there's loads of work to be done. Um, a lot of myth busting to be done as well. Um, on how would I explain QMS? Um, I would ex oh gosh, I would explain it as 
the um, well, a non-departmental non public body that um, takes a private levy point of slaughter um, from beef, sheep and cattle um, and also is responsible for running quality assurance schemes that um, promote the Scotch beef, Scotch lamb, especially selective pork brands that you see in supermarkets. Um, and that would probably be the succinct answer. And then there's obviously so much going on behind the scenes um, that, that all the teams are doing to, to work um, for, for the whole supply chain. That's an excellent answer, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Kate? Um, so in five years, I will definitely not be QMS chair because <gasps> I, can only, well, I can only do another uh, three and a half years from this point. I'm not allowed to do any more than that. Uh, and I've probably done my bit, to be fair. So I definitely won't be sitting here with QMS really on, um, as I am, even though Wallace said that we weren't brandies. Um, I will still be farming, definitely, because it's my absolute passion. But I would also like to continue to be involved in helping the whole sector move forward and, and make the most of things for the future, um, whether that's being involved with young people or with RET and education or with policy, I don't know, but I would definitely still want to be doing something uh, as well as just the, the mud and rain on the farm. Um, to explain QMS, I would say we are actually only a very small organisation. I think there's only 27 people in QMS at the minute and the amount of things that we do is absolutely staggering. Um, every time somebody says to me QMS should be doing such and such I 99% of the time I'll say we are um, we do the team do I'm saying we it's not me it's the team the team do a huge amount of work under the surface and they are really there to as our tagline says promote support develop and protect the red meat industry in Scotland and I think they do a fantastic job at that I would agree yeah I would absolutely agree that's that's it's there's no better answer to you should be doing this than we are. Yeah. <laughs> what we asked for. Um, yeah, definitely. Did you know one question, Kate? Your answer, I knew your answer had to be it wasn't for QMS because you said it on the other one. Is that a nice feeling or, or do you not like that? Do you like the fact do you like the fact that you definitely won't be QMS in five years, or would you like to see yourself still involved? No, I think. Uh, it, it's defined right from the start how long you can be yeah. so um it's absolutely i think people i think for any organization that you're on the board of or you're on a committee of or whatever i think there is a time limit that you should be on that and i think every committee should be like that because you need new ideas you need new people coming in so absolutely not and um it's quite a nice having done things before. So I was in a very, very small scale. I was president of the People's Show Committee. It was brilliant to be on that. It was brilliant to be involved, but it was absolutely fantastic to go back the following year and not have any of that responsibility. <laughs> so there is a progression there. So I would imagine in five years' time, I'll still go along to every QMS event that they host, and I'll be quite pleased that I'm not having to actually do anything at it. <laughs> It's like the difference between having your own child and like your sister or brother having a child. <laughs> I can give them back when they're getting annoyed. Beth, what about yourself? Five years time and if you had to sum up QMS quickly. 
so five years time I would like to still be farming uh, still very much get more involved in the family farm as well um, and hopefully we will have secured a new round of funding for the monitor farm program so this program will be finished in four years time um, so hopefully we'll be into a new area of nine new farms uh, and seeing where that can take us. Um, I suppose I'm branded slightly differently than everyone else. I've got the Monitor Farm badge on me. Um, so I often get asked, what does the Monitor Farm program, what does, what does it do? And really that is peer-to-peer -peer exchange. But how that links into QMS is um, being in the industry development team, what we really are doing is looking at product development. So how can we help producers to um, produce the best possible product and that is scotch beef, scotch lamb and specially select pork um, from the ground all the way through the supply chain and the QMS really works right the way through that supply chain. It's about collaborating um, all the way through and helping um, this supply chain become a bit closer together. Excellent. Excellent. You, it's, it's if you guys have like had like a sort of rehearsal before here because you said everything absolutely perfect. All you. Tom, uh, where do you see yourself in five years and uh, yeah, a brief description of QMS uh, Honestly Wallace, I would, in five years time I would love to still be doing this job at QMS because it's 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 an incredible job, it's, it's really challenging but it's also really rewarding You know, if we talked about Cial coming back from that, knowing that we had you know, secured 14 million quid's worth of new business for, for the Scottish uh, supply you know, network and, and, and all the way that that goes back through to to the farmers, the, the, probably the best thing about my job is actually sitting down with farmers because they don't see this side of it. It's not stuff that we can talk about and promote, but telling them the work that we're doing with exporters and promoters and, you know, their beefs in X restaurant in Canada, potentially, you know, it's stuff like that, that they just come alive when they actually see that side of it, because there's obviously that big disconnect between being out in the farm and then when we take it from the processor side, and run it through to the, you know, through the wholesale supply chain in the UK or the retail supply chain or the supply chain that goes over to export. So just explaining how all of that works is, is amazing. Uh, and they really, really like that. So that's really rewarding in terms of that. And in terms of QMS, uh, again, I, how would you describe it? I think, well, when I, I told a couple of my mates that I, I was starting with QMS, they said, well, you know, what is QMS? Don't have a clue, never heard of it, because they don't have the same retail background. And I says, look, I'm helping Nicola Sturgeon, the Scottish government, sell beef, lamb and pork around the world and in, in the UK. So uh, that's a, a very succinct way of putting it, not quite helping them personally, but, you know, the whole NDPP thing and how it works. Uh, so, so yeah, we're, we're helping, assisting, you know, it's not our product to sell, but we're trying to do all the right things to, to, to smooth the process for everyone involved. Uh, do you know, one thing you said earlier, Todd, I really liked is we're not selling a commodity. You know, you, we're, we're taking ourselves out of a perfect competition market structure and moving into having actually power over what we're selling. I like that a lot. Uh, that was quite cool. And you're, you're allowed to say the reason you want to stay at QMS is because you get to go to all these fancy meat events. Like, I get it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would too. Uh, you get you know, to eat a lot of steak, lamb and pork, you know, it doesn't get much better. As long as there's a bottle of red wine with Wallace, we're fine. <laughs> See, I don't, I don't know how much uh, great quality meat Scotland are involved in it, but uh, yeah, keep keep the... But here, here, it's an important part of it. We've got to be shown what you're supposed to eat with the steak. And, uh, you know, that's also a probably important thing to mention. Um, if you are, if you're listening uh, and you've been quite enjoying the chat today, uh, 
QMS is it Make It Scotch? Is that they've got the sort of is that a side company? Is that the same company? I'm not sure exactly how it works. But they sort of show a lot of um, recipes and whatnot as to as to how you can use a uh, Scotch. Let's say a Scotch lamb, Scotch beef, specialist like to pork, uh, and there's some fantastic things on there. So check them out, uh, Quality Meat Scotland as well on social media. Tom, does it look like you're about to say something? Yeah, that's just the yeah. consumer <laughs> facing side. So the Make It Scotch is the consumer facing side. Wallace, with all of the recipes and everything that sits there, you know, ideas, inspiration, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Perfect. So. Tom's put that much better than I had. The only advice I would say is do not go back to October because you'll see me in a fancy shirt uh, and it is not a good look for anyone. Um, yeah, a lot of good sort of recipes on there, really quite enjoyable. Uh, if you've enjoyed the podcast, as always, drop a follow on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or if you're listening on YouTube, which very few folk do these days. Um, but yeah, drop a follow, follow on R2K, which is Rural to Kitchen, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, and now Twitter. I have three full followers, Humble Flex. Um, if you're enjoying the podcast and you've enjoyed sort of this sort of chat, we release these group-based podcasts every second Monday, uh, and we release uh, on top of that a person in food and farming every single Friday. Uh, so on this Friday, we're going to have Ollie Harrison, as I said, three or three hundred thousand followers he has across all platforms. Sort of just shit, and it all started in COVID. It's only three years old. Um, it just shows you you can either be like Ollie and have three hundred thousand followers, or you can do it like me and have seven uh, so yeah there's different ways to do this social media thing uh, another good story there talked about a lot of things and one thing that was of a lot of interest <laughs> he spoke a lot about food and farming but one thing i really enjoyed was his little chat about um, when he went to Pripyat, uh, which is a lot that you'll know is the sort of village or town that chernobyl was based or is where it is so i really cool to chat about that uh, the following week um, we're going to have a guy called mark wong from Impossibrew, brew which is a beer that let me get this right, does not get you drunk, but gives you the buzz of alcohol. I don't understand it. I haven't filmed the episode yet, and I'm fairly excited to hear it. Uh, so, yeah, see you next week for another episode of the Arctic Cast. And thank you to all of you for coming on. I hope it's been worthwhile for yourselves. <laughs> Thanks very much. Thank you. I hope you've enjoyed another excellent episode of the Arctic Cast. I just want to take this moment to quickly thank our primary sponsors once more, A-Plan Rural. If you follow A-Plan on social media, you'll see the work they're doing to really promote British farming and back our industry. It's been a pleasure working alongside A-Plan Rural so far, and long may it continue. The values of A-Plan Rural runs perfectly in line with the whole mantra of Rural to Kitchen, and I'm glad to have them on board. Check them out on Instagram at A-Plan Rural and on Facebook at A-Plan Rural Insurance. See you for the next podcast.